0: in a burial cave in Jerusalem, archaeologists discovered a box containing the bones of Jesus of Nazareth, alongside another box with the bones of a woman called Mary, who was probably his wife. Well, that's what James Cameron, the director of the blockbuster movie Titanic, believes, and he'd like the rest of us to believe it as well which is why he produced a documentary for the Discovery Channel called The Jesus Family Tomb that attempts to argue for this incredible claim. I should say at this point that if you've uh, been unsettled by recent publicity about this documentary, you really shouldn't be. If you read what the real experts are saying, you'll discover that behind the attention-grabbing headlines, this latest theory has all the historical credibility of the Da Vinci Code which is to say, practically none. However, this uh, story is illustrative of of persistent attempts today in the media, in the universities, in popular culture, to completely humanise Jesus, to try to show that he was nothing more than a human like us. A good man, no doubt, but just a man. The idea that Jesus was also divine, that he was manhood and deity, as the song goes, that idea cannot be tolerated because of the life-changing implications that would follow. For if Jesus of Nazareth is truly the Son of God, then he has a claim on us. He has authority over us and we can no longer ignore him and his demands. But there's nothing new under the sun because the passage that we're focusing on this evening describes people in Jesus' own day who also could not handle the idea that he was more than a mere man, that he had authority over them, a God-given authority. And these folk weren't atheists, like our modern sceptics. They were the most religious people that you could find. Perhaps you came this evening expecting a sermon on how the Sabbath applies to Christians. Maybe that's what you thought when you saw this passage I have to tell you that these verses go so much deeper than that. I'm persuaded that this passage is primarily about the authority of Jesus. It isn't primarily about the Sabbath. It isn't primarily about what we should or shouldn't do on a Sunday. It is about the authority of Jesus and how we should respond to that authority. Luke's purpose here is to show us, indirectly, but clearly enough for those who have eyes to see it, that Jesus has the authority of God. And he reveals this stunning truth about the authority of Jesus by by describing two incidents connected by the fact that they both took place on the Sabbath day. We're going to look at each of these incidents in turn. I want to suggest to you that the focus of the first incident is that Jesus has authority over the law, and of the second, that Jesus has authority over life. So look with me now at these two incidents. Let's begin with the incident recorded in verses 1 through 5. Consider, first of all, the situation as it's described to us. When does this take place? One Sabbath, Luke tells us. This takes place on the last day of the week, the Sabbath, the Jewish Holy Day, their day of rest which extended from Friday evening to Saturday evening. Where does it take place? The grain fields, presumably somewhere in Galilee, where Jesus was preaching and teaching. What is going on? Well, apparently Jesus and his disciples are on their way somewhere through these grain fields, and the disciples are a bit peckish. There's no McDonald's in the vicinity, so the disciples pluck some of the heads of grain from the crops in the field, They rub them together in their hands to remove the husks and they chew on the uh, soft kernels inside. Not exactly haute cuisine, but enough to keep the wolves from the door. So that's the situation. But now the Pharisees appear on the scene. These uh, conservative religious leaders who have already been causing trouble for Jesus and they launch this accusation. Verse 2. Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, it's very important to understand what the disciples are being charged with. They were not being accused of stealing. It wasn't as though the disciples were acting like wee boys scrumping apples from a farmer's orchard. Now, that wasn't the Pharisees' complaint. In fact, what the disciples were doing was explicitly permitted by Old Testament law. In the book of Deuteronomy, one of the Old Testament law books, chapter 23 we find this law. If you enter your, uh, your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want, but do not put any in your basket. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to his standing grain. This commandment from God was designed to ensure that the well-off in the nation made merciful provision for the poor for the travellers, for people who found themselves in need. And so if you ever found yourself hungry and short of food, for whatever reason, you could always pop into your neighbour's field and pick something to eat with your hands. The amount taken would be negligible to the owner of the field, but it would make all the difference to your empty stomach. What you couldn't do, of course, was uh, drive up to your neighbour's field with your combine harvester and uh, just let rip. This was a law that was designed to strike a balance between justice and mercy. So the disciples are well within their legal rights. On this count, note what the Pharisees object to was the fact that they were doing this on the Sabbath. Sabbath, of course, was the Jewish holy day, a day of rest. According to the fourth of the Ten Commandments, work was forbidden on the Sabbath. Exodus 20 is where you find the Ten Commandments, and this is how the fourth commandment reads. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, you shall not do any work. Now clearly this law on its own says nothing about uh, picking heads of grain from a field the fourth commandment doesn't provide precise details about what counts as work on the Sabbath, although we do find some specifics in other parts of the Old Testament. So why is it, you may ask, why are the Pharisees so confident that Jesus' disciples have broken this law, this Sabbath law? Well, the answer is that the Pharisees were appealing to a, a large body of regulations that had been jo- drawn up by Jewish legal experts over many years which specified in exhaustive detail what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. And these traditions were like a a massive commentary on God's law, trying to spell out how it applied in every conceivable situation. How far could you walk without technically working? How much could you carry without technically working? How much food could you prepare without technically working? And so on. One commentator suggests that the Pharisees might have actually identified multiple crimes in the disciples' actions. He writes, The Pharisees would find in the plucking of the ears a breach of the regulation which forbade reaping and in the rubbing in their hands that which uh, which prohibited threshing. Throwing away the husks probably represented winnowing while eating showed that they prepared food. Four distinct breaches of the Sabbath in one mouthful. So here is the accusation. The disciples have broken the Sabbath law, the fourth commandment. And although the the question that uh, that the Pharisees ask is directed at the whole group, in essence, it is an accusation against Jesus. If he is truly a man on a mission from God, why is he allowing his followers to break God's holy law? How then does Jesus respond Well, let's look now at his refutation. How does he counter the accusation of the Pharisees? It's interesting to note how Jesus does not refute the Pharisees. He doesn't play the lawyer, arguing on detailed technical grounds that his critics have misapplied the fourth commandment. He could have done that. He could have. But the reason he doesn't do that, I think, is because he has a greater agenda than to merely correct their understanding of Old Testament law. Instead, Jesus wants to turn this into an opportunity to point them towards his own authority and his true identity. So how does Jesus refute their accusation? In two ways, two ways. First, Jesus appeals to David's kingly precedent. Look at verses 3 and 4. Jesus answered them, Have you never read what Jesus did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. What is Jesus referring to here? Well, he's recalling an incident in the life of David recorded in the book of 1 Samuel, one of the historical books in the Old Testament. It's 1 Samuel 21 if you want to check it out later for yourselves. In the story, David is fleeing for his life from Saul, his predecessor on the throne of Israel. God had already rejected Saul as king of Israel because of Saul's disobedience. And the prophet Samuel has anointed David as the new king. But not surprisingly, Saul uh, wasn't inclined to just hand over the crown to David and no, he put every effort into hunting David down and killing him. And in the story that Jesus is referring to, we find David and his loyal men taking refuge in the house of a priest called Ahimelech. David's men are hungry because they've been on the run. And David asks the priest for some, for some bread. But the only bread that Ahimelech has in his house is the bread of the presence, as it was called, or the consecrated bread, as Jesus refers to it here. 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel which were specially baked every Sabbath day placed on a table and dedicated to God uh, as symbols of Israel's special relationship with God. And according to the law of God delivered through Moses only the priests were permitted to eat the bread and only then after it had been uh, replaced by fresh bread. I'm not sure how keen the priests were to eat bread that had been set out on a table for a week, but that was the setup. And you can read about this in Exodus 25 and Leviticus 24. But despite these legal restrictions, David orders the priests to give the bread to his men because of the exceptional circumstances in which they found themselves. So what's Jesus' point in bringing up this incident? His point is this. Strictly speaking, David broke the letter of the law. He broke the law of God. And he did so because his men were hungry. But now, Jesus has presented the Pharisees with a dilemma. If they want to press charges against Jesus, then they should press charges against David as well. If they want to condemn Jesus as a casual lawbreaker, then they'll have to condemn David The greatest king of Israel as a casual lawbreaker as well. Jesus has turned their legalism back on their own heads. However, we mustn't let the subtle implication of Jesus' reply pass us by. Jesus has appealed to the precedent of King David. But just who does Jesus think he is to compare himself so confidently to David, God's anointed ruler? Just imagine, if you were to criticise me for something I'd done, some some inappropriate behaviour, and I were to reply to you like this. Well, if you know your history, you'll recall that Julius Caesar did the very same thing when he returned in triumph from his military campaigns. You'd rightly think that I had delusions of grandeur, or worse. No doubt the, the Pharisees thought the same of Jesus, and they were incensed. But Jesus is not only uh, suggesting that he has the rights and privileges of a king, he is deliberately hinting by his appeal to King David's precedent that he is now God's anointed one, the successor to uh, to the throne of David. But as if that weren't grand enough, Jesus goes even further. For not only does he appeal to King David's precedent... He also appeals directly to his own authority. Verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now this is a truly astonishing claim. Uh, The title Son of Man was one that Jesus often used to refer to himself. It was a title that hinted at his claim to be the Messiah, God's promised King and Saviour, but Jesus is now declaring that he, the Son of Man, is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the master of the Sabbath. He rules the Sabbath. He is claiming the authority to interpret the Sabbath law as he sees fit. In effect, Jesus' reply to the Pharisees is this. you think my disciples have broken the law? Well, I own the law. I am the law. So Jesus refutes the Pharisees' accusation by appealing to, King, uh, to David's kingly precedent and to his own authority as Lord of the Sabbath. But consider now the stunning implication of his response. We have to appreciate how all this would sound to first century Jewish ears. The Sabbath law Uh, that you should only work six days and rest on the seventh, had been spoken by God from heaven to Moses. It was one of the Ten Commandments. The Big Ten. And Sabbath keeping was also one of the things that that marked out Israel as God's special chosen people. It was a mark of God's ownership. And what's more, uh, the the origins of the Sabbath go back even earlier than the law given to Moses uh, on Mount Sinai. This one day in seven pattern was established by God in his creation of the universe. The reason given for the fourth commandment in Exodus 20 is that God created the heavens and the earth in six days and he rested on the seventh. So the Sabbath had God's fingerprints all over it. And yet here we find Jesus claiming authority over God's Sabbath, over the law of the Sabbath, and by extension, authority over all of God's law. The implication is clear. Jesus' authority is the authority of God. Jesus has God's authority. I should say a few words at this point about how we should relate all this to our attitude to Sunday. Sunday. Um, I I just can't deal in depth here with the question of the relationship between the Sabbath of the Old Testament and the Lord's Day of the New Testament, which Christians celebrate on Sunday, because that's the day on which Jesus rose from the dead. But I do want to leave you something to consider and act upon. Although the Lord's Day, Sunday, is, is not the same as the Jewish Sabbath, it's on a different day of the week, for starters, the Apostles and the early Christians apparently saw some degree of continuity between the two because they shifted their focus from the one to the other and they gathered for public worship, for Bible reading, prayer and teaching on the Sunday instead. So there's this continuity between the two of them to a degree. So given this connection between the Sabbath on the one hand and the Lord's Day on the other, there are two errors I think that we need to avoid. The first error is that of legalism of legalism. This is the era of the Pharisees. We mustn't fall into viewing Sunday in terms of a set of do's and don'ts that define our relationship with God or worse still, that defines other people's relationship with God as we silently pass judgment on them for not observing the do's and the don'ts that we do and don't. That's one error. The second error we also need to avoid is that of laxness. Of laxness. We also must not react against legalism by paying no attention at all to the question of how we should view Sunday, the Lord's Day. Jesus is as much Lord of Sunday now as he was Lord of the Sabbath then. He is the Lord of the Lord's Day. And so each of us, I think, needs to give careful thought to how Jesus would have us approach this special day. And that does mean studying and applying what God's Word teaches about it. I wonder, where do you get your ideas about how to spend Sundays? The traditions of Charlotte Chapel are not Lord. The traditions of your childhood church are not Lord. 21st century Scottish culture is not Lord. And you are not Lord. Jesus is Lord of Sunday, and we should honour his authority here, as everywhere else, by seeking his will in his word. I do suspect that most Christians today are in greater danger of laxness than legalism here. If you'd like to read some books to help you think through what the Bible teaches about the Lord's Day, then please speak to me afterwards, I'd be happy to give you some recommendations Well, we've looked at Jesus having authority over the law and the implications of that. Let's now turn to consider the truth that Jesus has authority over life in verses 6 through to 11. No doubt, the Pharisees were left speechless by this first Sabbath incident, uh, not just because of Jesus' clever appeal to David, but also because of the sheer audacity Of his authority claim. But it was, after all, only a claim. It's one thing to claim God's authority, isn't it? It's quite another to demonstrate it. And yet Jesus goes on to do just that in this second Sabbath incident. Once again, let's begin with the situation. Verse 6. It's another Sabbath. The place this time is the synagogue. Uh, the picture here is that's actually the synagogue in Capernaum, what's left of it, and the synagogue in which this takes place would have looked very similar. The synagogue was roughly the Jewish equivalent of our church building, where people would gather uh, on the Sabbath for scripture reading and teaching, and the Gospel suggests that this was Je- uh, Jesus' regular practice on the Sabbath, to teach in the synagogue. But today's Sabbath sermon is going to have a very dramatic visual illustration. But Luke tells us that in the synagogue was a man whose right hand was shriveled. The word shriveled suggests some uh, muscle wasting condition which had left the hand limp and useless. Almost certainly this affliction hindered the man's ability to earn a living in an age where gainful employment was, manu- was usually manual work. Uh, if you've ever suffered from a broken arm or a broken wrist and the incapacity that causes, then you'll understand something of this man's distress, his disability. Now, there's little doubt that given Jesus' growing reputation as a miracle worker, that everyone in the synagogue would, would, would be waiting to see whether Jesus was going to heal this man. And the Pharisees, who are practically stalking Jesus at this point, are no exception Verse 7, they watched him closely to see if he would heal. But the Pharisees don't want to see healing because they care about this man's problem, or even because they just enjoy a good miracle. No, they want to see Jesus heal so that they can level yet another accusation at him. Namely, the accusation that he has broken the Sabbath by doing a work of healing. These guys are now so blinded by their fear and their hatred of Jesus that they will overlook any good deed, even a miraculous good deed, for the sake of condemning him. To be fair to the Pharisees, and I want to be fair to the Pharisees, they weren't as bad as they could have been. They did, in fact, allow for medical treatment on the Sabbath, but only in cases where the patient's life was in immediate danger. But in this case, there is no such danger. The man had probably been living with this disability for years. There is no urgent need for Jesus to heal him on the Sabbath day rather than wait a day or two. Why not Sunday? Why not Monday? And so the Pharisees are ready to pounce because they know that Jesus wants to heal this man. The accusation is formed in their minds. And the remarkable thing is that the accusation never gets so far as their mouths. For Luke writes that Jesus knew what they were thinking. He didn't guess. He knew it. What kind of a man has the power to know people's thoughts? This is no ordinary man. Jesus knows their thoughts. He knows their accusation. But he is ready with a refutation He tells the man with the shriveled hand to stand up in front of everyone. The scene is dramatic. Just try to picture it. Jesus and the Pharisees are facing off. It's a very public confrontation. The crowds are watching. Who will be victorious? Have the Pharisees trapped Jesus this time? Or will they end up red-faced and tongue-tied again? Jesus makes his move. But he doesn't simply reach out and heal the man. First, he has a question for the Pharisees. Verse 9. I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life Or to destroy it? It's an embarrassingly simple question. These days, it would be called a no-brainer. Of course, one should do good on the Sabbath and not evil. But what Jesus has done here is to show God's intent for the Sabbath. God's intent for the Sabbath. The Sabbath, like all of God's laws, was intended for mankind's ultimate benefit. God's laws are a reflection of God's own heart. A heart that is not only holy and just, but compassionate and merciful. We saw that earlier, didn't we, with the, the law in Deuteronomy, about allowing the hungry to, to take grain from a neighbor's field. So if this is what law, God's law is like, how could it possibly be an offence before God to heal this man and to restore his livelihood on the Sabbath. But notice also how Jesus' question implicitly condemns the Pharisees. Jesus leaves no room for indifference towards this man's predicament. Either you do good by your response to it or you do evil. Either you show mercy or you don't. There's no neutral option. I suggested earlier that some of us may need to give more thought to how we approach Sunday. Well, there's a big clue here, isn't there? How can we take active steps, not merely to avoid evil, to avoid sin, as it were, but to do good on the Lord's day, to show mercy? What about visiting someone? can't get out to church? What about uh, showing hospitality to an international student or someone who would otherwise spend Sunday alone? What about spending time praying and fasting for someone you know who is struggling with their circumstances? What about getting down on your knees for Burma? What about spending time with a child who lacks a permanent father figure or mother figure in their home? What about inviting some friends who don't know Jesus to church to hear the good news about him? The possibilities are endless, are they not? But the immediate point of Jesus' question is to show that the Pharisee's attitude is not only mistaken but downright evil and in conflict with God's purposes. Their spiritual blindness and self-righteousness leads them to destroy life. Not merely the life of the sick man, but the life of the Son of Man, as they later conspire to have him put to death. Jesus' question has shown God's intent for the Sabbath. But now, he seals the argument by showing God's power on the Sabbath. No one has answered Jesus' question. No one needed to. The answer was so obvious. And so, Jesus turns to the man and says, stretch out your hand. The man does so and his hand is completely restored. The irony in the story is just wonderful. Jesus is being accused of work on the Sabbath. I ask you, Did that seem like work for Jesus? He didn't even touch the man. He just simply spoke four words. Well, there's no doubt now about who is Lord of the Sabbath. So what is the final implication? What is the implication of this? Well, Jesus not only has authority over the law, he also has authority over life. He only has to speak And life returns to a lifeless hand. He only has to speak and a man's health and livelihood are restored. But as every uh, scholar of the Old Testament knew and the Pharisees included, only God has the power and the authority to give life and to restore life. Once again, the implication is clear. Jesus' authority is the authority of God. He has God's authority over divine law, and he has God's authority over human life. There are many challenges in this passage for us, but I hope that some of us will also find encouragement here. Perhaps you have a crippled hand, figuratively speaking, some hindrance that holds you back in life, an illness. A past failure, a broken relationship, an area of conflict. And perhaps, too, you feel that God isn't concerned with your problem. That he's only concerned with your obedience. you living up to your duties, his commandments. Jesus' words and actions prove otherwise. God is supremely concerned with your life. But there's no, there's no competition between God's law and God's concern for your life. God's commandments are the maker's instructions. They're meant for our good, so that our hearts will be directed towards God's heart. And if we live in obedience to Jesus, to his laws of love, then we will walk in close fellowship with him. I'm not saying that Jesus will take your problem away as dramatically as this man's disability, although he may yet do. But he does promise that if we walk closely with him, we will receive whatever grace we need to live through it and even above it. He is the Lord of life and your life is in his compassionate hands. As we close... I want us to consider how we should respond to Jesus' authority claims and to compare our response to the response that Luke describes in this passage. On these two Sabbaths, Jesus has demonstrated his authority over the law and his authority over life. He has shown, in effect, that his authority is the authority of God, the highest authority in the universe. And, He has exposed the hard hearts of those who oppose him. So how do the Pharisees respond? They fall at Jesus' knees and cry out, Go away from us, Lord! We are sinful men! Well, no. That was the response of Peter the fisherman in Luke chapter 5. This is how the Pharisees respond. Verse 11. They were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. The Pharisees did what all of us are inclined to do when our wrongful thoughts and ungodly motives are exposed. They burned with anger and wanted only to get rid of the person who had exposed them. But it was a tragically misguided response because not only had Jesus demonstrated his authority, God's authority, he had also shown it to be an authority that has our best interests at heart. In their anger, the Pharisees separated themselves from God's good purposes. If you're a Christian here this evening, then you've already accepted in principle the authority of Jesus in your life. He's your Lord as well as your Saviour. Nevertheless, if we're honest, we have to admit that we still resist his authority in some areas of our lives. And perhaps there is some attitude, some ambition, some habit, or some relationship in your life where you have effectively said to Jesus, I don't want you to be Lord of that. And maybe part of you even resents Jesus resents the claim of Jesus to have authority over that area. You're angered at the thought that Jesus has to rule that area as well as all the other areas that you've willingly yielded to him. If so, you need to acknowledge that Jesus has divine authority over that aspect of your life as well. But you should be assured that his goal is not to spoil it, but to heal it, to redeem it, for his own perfect purposes. If you're not a Christian tonight, because you've never accepted Jesus' divine authority, his divine identity, then you need to come face to face with the words and the works of Jesus. As we've already seen in these series of uh, studies in Luke's Gospel, and we'll see further in the weeks to come, Jesus not only claimed to have the authority of God, But he proved it by his power over life itself. It may be that you resist the authority of Jesus because you think it would spoil your life to accept it. If so, you need to hear the words of Jesus. Yes, he has authority over your life, but his intention is to do good, not evil. He wants to save your life not destroy it. And he proved those intentions when he chose not to save his own life, but to submit to death by crucifixion as he bore the punishment each of us deserved for our sins against God. So that through Jesus, our lives might be healed and saved forever. This is the good news of great joy for all people.